Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new Aardman animated film, Early Man. And by new, I mean it's like three weeks out, but there's a lot of good movies coming out. Give us a break. And the June 2017 psychological thriller, It Comes at Night by Trey Edward Schultz, an oldie um, but a goodie if you haven't seen it. Stay tuned for that. We'll also be discussing our Oscar impressions after the big night, which was last night. If you're listening to this, the night this comes out, Monday, in a timely manner. And the news. Yes, first things first, Annihilation on Netflix. This is an article out of IndieWire. It says, moviegoers need to take responsibility for Paramount's controversial deal regarding Alex Garland's science fiction thriller, uh, Annihilation, that we talked about last week. This was a box office dud in the U.S., as they refer to it. Um, This article claims that it is not Paramount's fault. These kind of movies are a hard sell, which is interesting. They're saying it's not the studio's fault. Nobody's going to see the movie the studio made. Andy, do you have any impressions on this? Okay, so this was an interesting um, approach that they took to this. So what Paramount did, uh, to just clarify what the deal was, is they sold the international rights to Netflix. So if you're outside the U.S. and Canada... And China, I think. Um, Annihilation will be coming out on March 12th and on Netflix. So you can catch it then if you live outside the U.S. Now, this kind of upset people because there were lots of people outside the U.S. who wanted to see it on a big screen. And it is the kind of movie you do want to see in a, in a theater, um, for sure. Um, however, Paramount's kind of taken a lot of losses on a number of their recent films. Blade Runner 2049, Mother... And some others, and so to kind of mitigate, they watch. You're right, and so <laughs> so to to mitigate Transformers Five, their um, um, their exposure, they sold it to Netflix, and this was actually a good financial move because they sold it for the same amount as their production budget. So they're immediately they're at break even, and even though it Annihilation was a huge flop, unfortunately, they're already in the profit area. Right. This also happened with the Cloverfield Paradox, right? That was the deal? Yes. And was that also done by Paramount? I believe so. Okay. So this is not a foreign concept, but it's relatively new for this year. Anyway, go ahead. Um, so like I said, some, some, a lot of audience members are upset that it's not coming out on the big screen. And there's also some confusion because a number of people thought, oh, I'm not going to go see Annihilation in the theater. It's coming out on Netflix in two weeks, except it's not if you don't live in the <laughs> U.S. Right. Um, so there's there's some, like I said, confusion there, but also th- this article, and I've seen several more like it, that it's re- it's blaming filmgoers for not wanting, uh, once again, not wanting to see new and original movies or going to support new and original movies. This is something we've wanted to talk about for a couple weeks, and we haven't had the opportunity because we've been doing the Oscars, and we'll get to it, I swear. I, I would love to have a deeper conversation about why American audiences seem to shy away from more mature sci-fi film because clearly they don't have a problem going to see stupid transformers 5 because arguably that movie made the most money out of paramount slate last year which is chilling because there was a darren aronofsky film and a Denis villeneuve film on that list um and transformers 5 made the least of all of the transformers movies so paramount is having a rough year you're right but it's weird that people don't want to go see movies like this they'd rather see something toned down they'd rather see something a little bit a little bit lighter and and i guess i can understand that for general audiences but it's 
it's it's disheartening uh, for filmmakers like Denis Villeneuve and and for studios like Paramount to try to pick up movies like this where you can have these really incredible stories that are told in a sci-fi setting. It's the kind of thing Leonard Maltin was saying. Like it's uh, was it Leonard Maltin or Gene Siskel? Uh, Leonard Maltin. Leonard Maltin week, was yeah. saying that if yeah if you've only seen Star Wars and you don't then you don't know film and you're handicapped. Um, I think these stories are worth being told. I don't really understand why people don't want to go see them outside of like fear of wasting money at the box office, which is as, as a, as a proper film snob absurd to me. Uh, but I, I just like the Cloverfield paradox. I'm like, I get where they're coming from. They made their money back. It's, it's a guaranteed sell. And for Netflix, it's a good hit. I mean, I, I think I said last week about annihilation. If, if you are unsure about it, Wait for it to hit Netflix. It is absolutely worth watching on your couch. Is it as fine of an experience as being in the theater with like surround sound and and, and you know kind of a, a dark a dark scene to watch it in? No, it's not. It definitely isn't. Um, but I guess kind of like Blade Runner, I, I'm glad this movie got made and I'm, I'm glad it's getting placed somewhere. But it's kind of a bummer. What do you think? Yeah, it, it it's disheartening because I've I've heard that uh, Denny Villeneuve said that because of how big of a flop that Blade Runner was 2049 that he said he would never do that again he's like I'm not gonna make an auteur film on this big budget it's too big of a risk um so that that's pretty like I said it's disheartening that an artist is gonna have to play it more safe it's so twisted like that (laughs) that 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 brings me down so much to think that he wouldn't try to do it again because it was such an incredible experience just the general public didn't like it, and that's such a shame. Um, but just like Mark Kermode said, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it got made anyway. Even if it didn't work out that well in the end, like I'm glad it exists and it's something we can talk about. Um, the Academy Award winning Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, uh, that's right. We'll get to, we'll get to that in a, in a little while. Um, but for now, um, I guess I, just like the, the Netflix is killing cinema argument, I guess I can understand why why a lot of critics would be upset that foreign audiences are only going to see this on Netflix. But personally, like if this movie came straight to Netflix, I would have thought it was even cooler than it was because I get to watch it in the comfort of my own home and I don't feel like I have to pay for a ticket. I think I would have had a better impression of it. So maybe in that way, in the long run, this might be better for movies like this because people might walk away feeling better about it than they would have had they shelled out the price for a ticket. Right. And I wonder how quickly it's going to show up on in the U.S. market. I know that they have to wait at least 90 days, but then I wonder if they'll put it out right away or make wait six months or what they're going to do. It is crazy since we started doing this podcast, how many movies we've talked about, like five, five or six, maybe seven or eight shows ago that are already like on DVD and Blu-ray. It's nuts to me. How many of these have gotten turned around? Uh, I know Darkest Hour I saw, I think, is on Blu-ray already. Like, really? I thought we I felt like we just talked about that. Um, yeah. It's actually back in, what, late January we did mm-hmm. that show? So um, I guess it's been a month. Uh, it's fair. But man, that, like they, they turn these things around quick for production. I can't blame them. Costs a lot to make a movie nowadays. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yes, our next story. Uh, Wonder Woman 2, eyeing Kristen Wiig... For villain role. Kristen Wiig is, of course, best known for her comedy chops on SNL, Bridesmaids, and a ha- Ghostbusters 2016, and a handful of other movies uh, I can't think of off the top of my head. Um, but she's done a little bit of drama work in uh, The Skeleton Twins, where she starred alongside Bill Hader. I think that movie is on Netflix, if you want to check it out. 
Um, it was definitely more of a dark, dramatic role. I didn't see it, so I'm kind of just spitballing here. Did you see that, Skeleton Twins? No. No. Um, but I heard it was good. <laughs> I didn't watch it. It's <laughs> on my watch list somewhere. Uh, but apparently she's got no problem going dark when the role calls for it, which is good news for Wonder Woman fans because she is being eyed as I said in the headline, to take on the villain role in Wonder Woman 2. Uh, Andy, you know a little bit more about this than I do because you're more familiar with comics. Who is she supposed to be playing exactly? She's going to play Cheetah. Cheetah. Who is one of one of Wonder Woman's kind of arch uh, nemesis who's like a, you know, she's like half Cheetah, half person. Right, an original Wonder Woman villain, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it goes, goes and, and, way back. Wonder Woman, I think, came out before Batman, right? So this is this is an early Catwoman play. Right. Right. So Catwoman arguably came off this, but they're all DC, so I guess it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm looking forward to some kind of Justice League 2 Catwoman cheetah joke. That would be awesome. <laughs> anyway, uh, what do you think about this? Well, you know, what's strange is, um, is actually... I want, I want, I'm just interested to see what they're going to do with like the cheetah character. Like, trying to bring that to life and make it look believable and not ridiculous i think is the most challenging part uh i mean i think kristen wiggs uh, she's a fine actress and she can she does great serious roles um the last thing i saw her in was actually uh she she has a small role in mother but that's very dark um which uh, here i'll get this is gonna be spoilers for mother because no one's gonna no one has seen it um <laughs> mother. Uh, she she's executing people like uh that have like you know bags over their heads it the third act of the of the film, like shooting them, yeah, it it, it, it comes out of nowhere. Um, so that yeah, sounds it, like it comes out of nowhere. <laughs> so yeah. she, uh, so I think she can really do a, a serious, you know, kind of villainous role. It to me, it, the bigger challenge is how are they going to make Cheetah like not be just like a big joke? Yeah, looking at I just pulled it up on Google Images. Cheetah is not like Catwoman in that she's a woman dressed in like a leather cat suit. She is like a half Cheetah woman. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that, something that, in mm. yeah in the in the comics she, she's like an archaeologist and she discovers like some you know cursed dagger and picks it up and it cuts her or something and she's like it's cursed to be like half cheetah or so it's kind of a rip off of Black Panther in a, in a little ways. <laughs> oh DC, oh wow, yeah. I um this is compelling. I, I hadn't seen an image of Cheetah. If you're listening to the show and you haven't heard, if you haven't seen it, go check it out uh, at some point cheetah from wonder woman is uh i don't know what they're gonna do there's definitely already a couple images uh from like movieweb.com as one one up what Kristen wig looks like as cheetah in wonder woman what they think she'll look like and it is a sight to behold it's almost like mystique from the x-men except instead of like blue paint it's like fur and orange and spotted so i i um like I said, making this, making this character like convincing and villainous, and let's you know, yeah. and and who is supposed to be an equal to Wonder Woman is is going to be a real challenge. Out outside of her her dramatic acting chops, because neither of us have seen that. Why Kristen? Why Kristen Wiig for this role? Why why Kristen Wiig for the villain role in Wonder Woman? Out of all the people to cast, why why do you think? They're eyeballing her. What is it about her that is attractive to a series like Wonder Woman? You know, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, obviously she'll bring comedic chops, so maybe she'll be the, uh, you know, comic relief, but I just, I have a hard time imagining it. I believe, based on what I know of Kristen Wiig and kind of how she can slide into a role, 
in her, in her time on SNL, like I think she could be able to pull off something that might look a little absurd, like like you know, Cheetah. Um, and I think yeah, it would it would garner attention because people would think, wow, Kristen Wiig. I wonder how she is in that. Maybe I'll go see it and find out. I think there's a curiosity element there that keeps people kind of coming to the theater. I mean, people would go see Wonder Woman two anyway, but. It is interesting that in Wonder Woman 2, they're aiming to use a female antagonist outside of the, what was her name in Wonder Woman 1? Dr. Dr. Poison? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I'm surprised isn't the villain in, in 2, but uh, you win some, you lose some, I guess. Either way, I'll, I'll kind of be interested to see what happens. I hope this isn't one of those stories that we talk about and then like a week from now is completely null and void. Uh, hopefully this one actually does become something. But according to this article, it's... Uh, I mean, she's she, she's on the docket. There's a real possibility here. Yeah, and I think what's what is kind of cool about something like Wonder Woman as a property because it's not as established as something like Batman and Superman. You can actually explore new characters and introduce new people, and people don't have like an expectation of like I have to see the Joker, I have to see Two Face, right? Like what DC should be doing with the rest of their movies instead yeah. of just like throwing in the standard boilerplate who you're supposed to see. Kind of thing. Suicide Squad kind of did that, but uh, either way. We should move on to our last story. Uh, Marvel's Avengers Infinity War moved to April. This was a big one, and I remember seeing this and thinking, I should text Andy, and then like an hour later, you texted me like, dude, uh, check this out. So th- this is a story. Yes, in, a, in the surpriseiest of surprise moves, Marvel started March off by moving up the Avengers Infinity War release date for the entire world a whole week to Friday, April 27th. They did this, what, two months before the movie comes out? Yeah. They just bumped it a week, and they did it in a really fascinating way. They did this on... Twitter, thanks to at Robert Downey Jr., the Iron Man, who in a personally staged, I it had to have obviously been exchange. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't roll your eyes and say obviously. All right, I'm I'm dressing it up for the audience. I knew it was. Uh, yeah, in in a in a clearly staged uh, affair, they had Robert Downey Jr. ask them to bump up the. Marvel Studios Avengers Infinity War date and they said of course Mr. Stark we're happy to do that uh, and bumped it up a week on Twitter interesting move what do you think about this I mean there's already a lot of hype behind Infinity War and so this just ramps it up even more everyone's just even more excited and you know I was looking at the the release slate to see what was coming out on the 27th April 27th and there's nothing like there's absolutely nothing coming out on that date so it, it doesn't affect any other film negatively it it also it gives it some more room before deadpool so it has three weeks to make money before running into deadpool as opposed to just two um so i think that's that's one of the reasons i also heard some people think that oh it's so everyone avoids spoilers because a lot of times these movies will actually release internationally first before they hit the states Mm-hmm. So now it's going to be the same day for everyone. I'm not sure if that's necessarily the case. Um, I think it's probably just more for hype and for money. Yeah, I've always I've always been weird about international releases versus U.S. releases because the way I see it, I'm like piracy is universal. All right, <laughs> if you if you put your movie out in one country, the other countries can get it. There's really not a whole lot to it. So I've always I've always kind of struggled to understand why they stagger release dates. So I think it's smart to do it worldwide. 
And yeah, you're exactly right. It's clever to bump it up, especially on a platform like Twitter that not a whole lot of people are on. And if you're on Twitter, you probably think that's a stupid statement, but it's true. How many of your Facebook friends have a Twitter account that they use? Like Twitter is not all that popular. So to do something like this and have it come out in articles like, hey, check out this thing that happened on Twitter. It's smart because it almost seems like an underground thing, even though it was public. Like, oh, man, if you had been on Twitter, you would have seen this cool thing. Follow Marvel and at Robert Downer Jr. on Twitter for more cool things like it's clever. It's a clever way to drum up publicity for yourself and for your movie and to get people excited about something cool happening. And of course, of course, it's tongue in cheek. Of course, people saw it and immediately knew it was staged, but like, it still kind of feels like you're in on the joke a little bit. Like you got to see this go down um, before the rest of the world, so it's it's kind of clever. The first the first time I saw it was because Chance the Rapper tweeted about it, um, right? And and that's how I stumbled across it. So I I don't know. I I think it's a smart move. I think it's a smart move to kind of distance it from uh, their other releases. When is by the way Solo coming out? Uh, end of May. I think a week. End of May. A week or maybe two weeks after Deadpool. Gotcha. See, I don't know because they've been doing this thing. Um, that I think is terrible marketing. But here, here, if I'm wrong, please tell me. At the end of the solo trailers, it just says Memorial Day. I'm like, I don't know what day that is off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. So nice moves, guys. Like, I'm not the only one who doesn't know that. Like, if you just had a date, I'd know, okay, that's the date it comes out. Instead, you said Memorial Day. It's like, okay, well, you're assuming everybody that sees this trailer knows what day that is. I don't. So I got to ask about it on, on my own film podcast. Um, uh, for for what it's worth, I, I think it's smart to kind of distance themselves from the other kind of releases. I, I don't think it's a good thing they didn't just demolish any other movies like Early Man got demolished by Black Panther because um, that would have been hilarious if they bumped it into a slot that like had, I don't know, some other family friendly flick going against it and it just got destroyed. Um, I, I don't know. I, I guess I guess I'm with it. I, I the, the volatility of it kind of bums me out, but that's that's for another conversation i guess what do you think hype train <laughs> i'm all about hype train hype I, train yeah <laughs> i used to avoid them um but now i realize it's actually a lot of fun to be a, a part of it so um like i i won't actually hype the movie but i'll just like I'll, I'll like get hyped about getting hyped if that makes any sense sure we need like a hype train sounder like hype train yeah or something all, I don't know. all aboard Is there any other news you want to cover? Uh, I think that's it for to, for today. All right. Well, then we should probably move into our first feature film a couple weeks out, but I'm glad we're getting to talk about it regardless. This is the new Aardman animated film, Early Man. I'll take him away and kill him. Slowly. Ah, idiots. The plot for Early Man is a little... I don't want to say convoluted. It's actually kind of simple, to be fair. The movie is just under 90 minutes at an hour 29, which in this humble reviewer's opinion makes it less than a feature film. But I still enjoyed it. Uh, so let me give the plot synopsis. Set at the dawn of time, when prehistoric creatures and woolly mammoths roam the earth, early man tells the story of Doug, along with his friendly sidekick pig, hog, yeah. hobnob, as they uh, hognob, I'm sorry. As they unite his tribe against a mighty enemy, Lord Nuth, and his Bronze Age, Bronze Age city to save their home. I stumbled through that 
Early Man is a stop-motion animated film. If you are not a fan of stop-motion, I'd like to apologize. Stick around for our Oscars conversation. Um, I think the best place to start talking about this movie is the stop-motion because it is the core of the film, the same way I'd talk about a movie like Kubo and the Two Strings. I think stop-motion is the best place to kind of get into it. Um, I think the animation in this movie, and again, I want to get into this before plot or character, uh, the animation in this movie is pretty incredible. And I, I say pretty incredible because I thought something like Kubo was really incredible. This one was pretty good. One of the kind of charms of Ardman is they still use the claymation style. Ardman also did Wallace and Gromit, Chicken Run, Shaun the Sheep, uh, Pirate's Band of Misfits for, for the half dozen of you that might have seen that. Um, so they've got like these big expressive eyes and it's claymation. You can see thumbprints all, all over the models, yeah. <laughs> uh, between, ta- but yeah, between, between frames. And I think, I think there's something to that and, and they kind of keep things simple being a movie called early man, but there's also a lot of shots in here that I thought to myself, wow, those are really clever because I think stop motion nowadays has to evolve the genre. You have to move it forward. You can't just do what you did before because nobody will see it. And there's a handful of scenes in Early Man that I thought were really, really kind of impressive. They do a lot of forced perspective in this movie, which actually works really well in its favor. And if it's not forced perspective, it's just really good like model swap animation work. And they also do a lot of um, backgrounding with models there's a lot of scenes in football stadiums and i should clarify football is a very very core central aspect to this movie ardman is a british studio football being soccer as we understand it in the states um this movie's pretty much all about football and the invention of football and why football helps bring us together instead of divide us um <laughs> it's, ve- it's very british a lot of the scenes in this movie are set go ahead no, I was just going to say it's it's very British film because of that. Because it is like- a very, yes, it is a very British film. Uh, a lot of the scenes in the movie are set in a football stadium. And what's cool is, unlike, I feel like a handful of movies I've seen, um, in the stadium, even though they're in the background and blurry, the stadium is fully animated. Everybody moves. There are people waving their hands. There's things happening. It's really cool, and they do a really great job of kind of bringing this world to life. There's animals, it's, there's these lush kind of green backgrounds in the forest. Um, it's effective, and the characters kind of stand out from each other. They, they do kind of blend together, a handful of them at least. But for the most part, your central characters, Doug, Hognob, um, Lord Newth, the woman who Maisie Williams plays. Gosh, I can't remember her name. Do, do you remember it? Uh, Guna. Guna, yes. Uh, they kind of stand apart, and they work. Chief Bob Nar is the other one. Uh, so for the most part, at least looking at the animation of this movie, I didn't enjoy it as much as something like Kubo, but for an Ardman film, I could get behind it. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, I thought it was a great little, you know, kids movie. Um, you know, the the plot was fine like a lot of times kids movies are really dumbed down and really nonsensical and they're just really dumbed down yeah they're just like oh let's have lots of loud banging and shiny sparkly things for them to look at for 80 90 minutes um so i like that there was cohesive plot memorable characters you know it's a good kind of beginning intro to cinema yeah i okay i could well hold on expand on that for a minute How, how do you mean (laughs) <laughs> well uh, i know i don't mean to put you on the spot but uh, no go ahead 
well, you know, so Roger Ebert once said that this, he, he, he wrote about, um, you know, everyone starts as like your average ca- casual film goer and over time you should kind of mature. And so this is a nice little film that has a plot, has characters, your characters kind of change throughout the film. So you get these um, kind of fundamentals of good filmmaking in a very accessible way for children. It's true. Yeah, the plot kind of does this funny thing where it kind of dips and dives. In the very beginning, our characters are offset from their normal setting in this valley, and they are banished to the Badlands by the kind of soldiers or the really the army of the Bronze Age city. That's the deal. They are of the Stone Age, and the bad guys are from the Bronze Age. Everything they have is, is clad in bronze. They, they, they've moved on. They've evolved. And so the plot of Early Man really is... is, is I guess to sum it up in a very adult way for a PG film, uh, it's... Imperialism. <laughs> right, imperialism. That's exactly what I was going to say, yeah. Um, it's it's about how you don't have to change. You don't have to do what everybody else does, and you can do your own thing, and that's okay. And it's an important lesson for kids. And the plot takes a... Yeah, like I said, it's kind of a roller coaster of, of ups and downs. There are parts that are dark, where the stakes are raised, and there are parts that are bright, where they're hopeful, and everything's going to be okay. And for the most part, like, it's effective. It, it reminded me of Chicken Run, um, but in a way that wasn't particularly violent, because Chicken Run had some stuff that was particularly violent, at least for me as a kid. Um, I enjoyed the characters. Like I said, a handful of them blend together. The kind of base tribe that that Doug is is in, a lot of those characters are just kind of, you know, they just got a kind of few lines. You don't hear a lot from them. Um, I appreciate them as characters, but I just kind of wish they had been fleshed out more. Um but Doug and Lord Nuth, the, the, kind of the two mains, the protagonist and antagonist, they're really well done. And something that surprised me, especially when I go see a movie like this, is I listen to the voice acting, try to pick out who it is, and I really couldn't. It wasn't until we got to the credits and, they, and you start seeing, okay, who who plays who that I was right. really surprised. Like, uh, Eddie Redmayne plays Doug. Uh, Tom Hiddleston plays Lord Nuth in a role that I would never have guessed was Tom Hiddleston. Yeah, um, same here. Really surprised there. Maisie Williams plays... Oh, God, I Guna. just told me her name. <laughs> Guna. I want to say Goon, and I know that's wrong. <laughs> Timothy Spall in Chief, in, in Chief Bobnar and Richard Aoade for any IT crowd fans as one of the sidekicks, Trebor. Um, so I was really, really impressed by the voice acting, and the animation, again, is enough to kind of just lull you into the film without making it feel like this is all too real. Um, Kubo, like, really did bring you into the experience. Early Man because of kind of the claymation style it keeps it it keeps the world of the film at arm's length it reminds you that this is you know a story being told particularly for kids but it's you know it's 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 something it's not real it's separate it's 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 its own kind of world and i think that's important for kids to understand yeah like you said the difference between a cinematic universe and an actual our universe it's 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 more accessible in a way yeah definitely it's kind of separated i also really like the humor um it i mean there's a lot of slapstick kind of like people falling or getting hit by stuff but there's also just there's a lot of good jokes there's a lot of jokes that only adults will get one one of them that uh, really made me chuckle was uh you know they're eating dinner and uh, someone says aren't you going to eat your uh, primordial soup you know, which is oh, yeah. which obviously is has to do with like evolution and stuff, and is, will fly completely over a kid's head. But it's it's a nice little joke, and like the soup has these eyeballs floating in it because it's like an evolving creature. 
Right. Um, so I, I laughed and chuckled, you know, my, my way through through the film. And I imagine if I was in a larger theater, which, by the way, I had to see this at 10 in the morning. That was the only time it was showing. Yeah, we, we should talk about that. And before I dig into it, along with the primordial soup thing, strange amount of subtle body horror in this movie. I mean, I guess you wouldn't call it body horror, but there's little things like their like their sneakers that they wear are a certain type of caterpillar in the world. And they essentially lobotomize these caterpillars <laughs> and stick them on their feet and run around with them. Like just little things like that. Or yeah, the soup with the eyeballs in it. I was just like, "Huh, like this is a little little weird." But again, like you said, it's a good it's a good kind of segue into uh cinema. I caught this movie in one of four showings at a 30-screen theater because it was the only one near me running it, and this movie's been out for three weeks. Early Man came out next to Black Panther, same weekend. I think it's safe to say this movie got absolutely crushed, right? Yeah. And to be fair, I mean, it's not exactly killing it on Rotten, but I'm pretty sure it's certified fresh. Like, it's not a terrible movie. It's it's a good stop-motion flick. If you, if you enjoyed something like Kubo, I think you'd enjoy this. Um, but man, like nobody went and saw this movie. And again, very British movie. A lot of British jokes in here. A lot of, a lot of jokes. I was like, if I was in Britain, I would think this is great. You know, it's British because when they first say the word football and you see a soccer ball, you're like, oh, okay. I understand what I'm in for here. Um, and in that way, it might be difficult for kids to kind of wrap their head around, but at the same time, it's endearing and it's charming because it kind of tries to tell a little, a little foreign story. Um, to kids that they may not be able to get in places like, uh, I don't know, the first thing I was going to say was Door the Explorer, but I don't know, an average television and film that is aimed towards kids. So I appreciated it, I guess, despite the fact that it didn't quite clear 90 minutes. It was very short. I, I walked out of this movie and we were walking to the car and I looked at my watch and did a double take, like, oh my God, how's it over already? <laughs> um Compared to other movies we've been watching for this show, it was uh, it was brief. As was our, our other movie. It comes at night, actually. So, uh, any other thoughts before we get to recommendations? Have you heard the theory that Chicken Run is about the Holocaust? No. Well, so that that's something I read, and I've read it several several times. Um, I think it's more actually based on uh, the Great Escape. But uh, I, I was reading this analysis about how it's like. The, the the chicken coop and everything is like a parallel to concentration camps. And I don't know how true or accurate that was the intention, but there's this like subtle, like seriousness and kind of darkness to that film. And, and like I said, a little bit in this one too, because they're essentially, you have like a more advanced civilization kicking out the native population and yeah. kind of keeping them like they're behind barbed wire and like... <laughs> I mean, it was like this. <laughs> there's literal barbed wire. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm like, there's some like really serious kind of connotations underneath all this that obviously you know cho- children won't understand or, or get. But I definitely see, catch it as an adult. I I don't know about that in this movie, and I, obviously I don't know about it in Chicken Run. But one thing I do know, like Chicken Run is a dark flick. People. Like, I know people that saw that movie and they were kids like, oh, I thought that was great. I'm like, there were parts of that movie that scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. Seriously. Like, at the end of Chicken Run, spoiler alert for anybody that's never seen this this movie, uh, with, like, Mrs. Tweedy climbing up the Christmas lights with an axe, just swinging it wildly with the crazy eyes. Dude, that movie messed me up. 
That kept me up at night. <laughs> and it's, 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 you should consider, I made this point earlier in the day to, to, to a coworker and he thought it was stupid, but ser- hear me out. The people that would t- take their kids to go see Early Man are people that are probably our age that saw Chicken Run when they were kids and it might have freaked them out. So they might see something like Early Man and be like, mm, no, that might be a little dark for my kid. <laughs> I- I'm telling you, there was, there's at least a handful of people that didn't go see this movie because of that. Chicken Run was, was kind of a creepy flick, uh, for what it's worth. I like it now. I appreciate it more. It's got Mel Gibson in it. But I, I it, it was a little weird. And this one's a little weird, too, but in a much more like accessible way, I think. Um, so, yeah, I guess. Uh, Andy, would you recommend Early Man? Uh, yeah, you know, definitely if if you have kids or it's, you know, it's very fa- family friendly, it's brief. Oh, another thing I remembered. I only had yeah. like eight minutes of previews and it was great. And I was oh, thinking, wow. and I was thinking, I wonder if that's because it's they know it's for younger audiences. They don't have as long of a as long of as an attention span, and so they cut the previews in like half. So I, yeah. I thought that was wonderful. I had like, I think I probably had about seventeen minutes of previews to my compared like what twenty twenty five or twenty eight minutes of previews. One of them uh, I would like to talk about at another point. We'll have to save it for like trailer bait at some point or the trailer park because it is uh, it was a trailer, man. I don't know. Okay, here, I'll just real quick. Did you see the trailer for this movie called I Can Only Imagine? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> we got to talk about that some other time. Uh, I know okay. I'm right in the middle of recommendations. We can't talk about it now, but like, man, oh man, uh, we should talk about that sometime. Cause that's, that's a site. Uh, early man, I would recommend it. I, I think it was really enjoyable. I don't have kids, so I don't want to say your kids will like it, but like, I'm a big fan of stop motion. I've been a fan of stop motion since watching old school Rankin and Bass Christmas flicks back in the day, like Rudolph and little drummer boy. Uh, and I, I, I truly think it, it is an art, uh, and I, I wish more studios did it. There are very few doing it now. The two big ones are Ardman and Leica. Um, they both deserve your support, I think, because just like how Pixar started making movies that really could only be told in CGI, I think these studios make movies that are best told in stop motion, and it really is a subtle thing. And and even if not everyone's a hit, even if not everyone is super successful, like it's worth the you know it's worth a few bucks if you got nothing going on to go check it out if you can if it's still in theaters around you. It probably isn't at this point, but when it comes to Netflix or or Amazon Prime, uh, check it out. What the hell, you know? Take 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 an evening, watch Early Man. You might you might you might just like it. And wacky <laughs> as that sounds, so that's my official recommendation on Early Man. I guess. Any, other, any any closing thoughts before we move on to, uh, you know, the, the, the big event? <laughs> I'm ready for the big event. All right, the big event. Uh, this is where we talk about uh, the 2018 Oscars. What's, what's the best way to get into this? Do, do you have any... Okay, well, let me let me just talk about my Oscar experience. <laughs> Please do. Yeah, talk about your experience, and I'll talk about mine. Go ahead. So I'm a big fan of the Oscars. I've seen every show except one since the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Last year was the first year I missed because I just couldn't find a TV to, to watch it on, <laughs> um, th- which is a frustrating thing. It, it's hard to find if you don't have cable because I'm a cord cutter. It's hard to find somewhere to to watch it. So I had like three plans in place 
and two, the first two fell through, and luckily another friend of mine in the the complex I live in uh, was going to watch them, so I went over there. Um, and I'm probably the only person who really likes the show, and like I'm like, oh, it's four hours long, great, you know, <laughs> like, oh, you're going to discuss all these films that most people didn't see, great. Oh, you're going to talk about all these award, these technical awards that a lot of people don't understand, great. Like, I, I enjoyed the whole spectacle. It's it's just this huge celebration of film and actors and just Hollywood, the whole thing. Um, and I really enjoy that. Whereas I can't, I cannot watch things like the Grammys or the Emmys, certainly not the Golden Globes. Um, Cause I feel like they just don't really celebrate the art that they're supposed to be about. Um, mm. So, but I, you know, I like the performances, the, like the live musical performances they do, the jokes, you know, you see your, all the, these mega stars, and their fancy gowns and things, so I I just enjoy the whole night, and especially even even the commercials, because all all a lot of the commercials have a lot of the directors or actors, or they're very like film centric commercials because of what you're watching. Yeah, I, I was really impressed, and I think I always am by somehow seeing a room, just a giant room, chock full of all of these stars and celebrities you like. You know, seeing Steven Spielberg sitting three seats down from Matthew McConaughey and seeing Francis McDormand sitting just across the way from Sandra Bullock. Like, there's something about it. And and, and I'll always be charmed by that, um, despite how many people say, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't put celebrities on a pedestal. I, I get that. But, like, for one night, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's really enjoyable. I did not watch the Oscars. Um, wasn't exactly a choice. I, I would have if I could have. But once again, uh, ABC made it as difficult as possible for me to watch um, what should be regarded as essentially public access television uh, on any kind of streaming device. I needed some kind of login to do it, and I used my parents down in Houston, and they had some kind of setup where it was like, wait a minute. You, you, you're, you, you, it says you're in, it says you're in North, da- North Texas. They like got, they got you. Yeah. You're not in Houston. This can't be right. And it didn't work. Uh, fortunately for me, while I, while I would like to criticize ABC and say they're not with the times, uh, unlike last year and years before by 6am this morning, when I woke up to get ready for work, oddly enough, uh, they had on their YouTube channel on the ABC YouTube channel. They had official videos of every acceptance speech and opening monologue and bits and little extra behind the scenes thing. All of it was available like hours later. So while I couldn't find an easy live stream, kudos to getting it all online and not just having people rip it off like like they've done in previous years. So I could appreciate that. It bummed me out. I wanted to watch it. Uh, out of all the things I've watched for this show, that was one that I really wanted to get on, on board with, but I just couldn't figure out an easy way. I think it's funny, and I think it's telling. Uh, earlier today, for those who don't know, um, I do this podcast thing um, professionally as well as here, and I was working on a show. When one of the people, We were talking about the Oscars, of course, because that's what people are talking about, and the host of the show said that he had not seen any of, of the best picture noms <laughs> and very, few, I think you were watching when yeah. this happened, Andy. Yeah. And very few of the other movies. And then he laughed as he switched to the Razzies and said, Oh, by the way, I've seen almost every Razzie best picture nom just went right down the list. Transformers five Baywatch, the emoji movie. And like, I, <laughs> Oh God, it hurt. It, oh, it was rough. 
Like just because like I I I'm I'm in so much the opposite camp. I I would so much rather watch these films than any of that garbage cinema. Um and, and it was it was so obscure hearing him say that. Like really? And this is just a member of the general public. This could have been anybody. You know, and, and for all I know, a lot of people could be in this boat. And that's such a shame because the nominees for this year's Oscars are truly incredible. They are fantastic. I, I I hope looking at the results, I'll look back on 2018 and years to come and think, man, that was a great year at the movies. Because there was some really great stuff. Yeah, a lot of times uh, whenever the awards are given out, uh, people are upset or they say this this person got robbed, that person got robbed or or a lot of times one movie will run away with everything and win like five or six of all the big awards. And um, this year... Everything's felt very spread out and actually kind of even all around. Everyone got a little something. Yeah, it, it all felt very, um, and I don't want to say it's ever unfair, but it just felt very fair. Yeah, everything that got, everything that got a win, I was like, that feels pretty right. You know, I didn't I didn't feel like anything was particularly overlauded. I didn't feel like anything was particularly missed or overstepped or overshadowed. Um, I was really pleased with everything, the way everything shook out, everything I kind of shook my head and said, yeah, that, that was a, that was a good win. You know, that was a good one. Um, I think maybe a lot of that has to do with doing this show and going out of my way to see movies that I probably wouldn't have seen otherwise. Um, but it's totally worth, it's totally worth your time. And I'm looking forward to kind of doing it more in the future. So I guess we should start digging into these categories. We've been talking about how great the Oscars are for long <laughs> enough. Yeah. What do you want to start with? Why don't, why don't you take the first one? Uh, why don't we go with uh, Best Picture? Uh, All right, do exactly what the Oscars don't do and just start with the goods first. I yeah. dig it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, Guillermo del Toro won for The Shape of Water. If I told you about her, what would I say? I wonder. which he also won uh, for Best best Director. And, uh, you know, this was a, a really great film. Uh, I think uh, Three Billboards was also the kind of hot contender. Um, my personal favorite would have been uh, Dunkirk, of course, but I think that had kind of fallen by the wayside. It was just, you know, it is kind of a popularity contest, and it just uh, was n- not the favorite, unfortunately. But, I mean, The Shape of Water is a great movie. It definitely deserved to win. It's w- definitely one of my favorites of, of uh, last year. I I mean, I said it on last week's show, and I've said it to a lot of people. I wanted Shape of Water to win. I didn't think it realistically would. I just didn't. Um, the movie was incredibly charming. I mean, we talked about it before. Like, there's something about Shape of Water. Like, And I think this is maybe why it did so well. Outside of, like I said, the tribute to old school Hollywood with Samson Delilah in the old school theater uh, in the movie. But I think there's something really the most effective thing for The Shape of Water for me was I went into that movie like everybody else did. Optimistic, but a little skeptical. How is this guy from Mexico going to convince me that a mute woman can fall in love with a fish man and like (laughs) make it work and make me care by the end of the movie? And what's so charming about The Shape of Water is it kind of works. And I think that's what leaves people, that's what leaves Oscar voters with such a lasting impression that they walk away from this movie going, wow, you got me. You managed to convince me that somehow it's legitimate. And I heard, I read that criticism on Reddit like a lot of us did. It's a little true. The The relationship between the main characters in the movie is a little rushed and it kind of feels a little forced and it's often 
maybe even misleading. Maybe we feel a certain way about it and that's not the way things are. But for some reason, like this movie stuck with me. There's something about it. Yeah. And, and, and I was pulling for it the whole way. So I'm really pleased to see not only did it win best picture, but Guillermo del Toro won best director for it. Is that to say somebody else should have won instead? I don't know. Um, but again, there were a lot of big ones this year and I hate to say it's an honor just to be nominated, but really in the case of 2018, it was an honor just to be nominated. Yeah, especially was, considering what movies weren't nominated for Best Picture, but we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the the fields were stacked in almost every category. I think probably we can move on to uh, actor in a leading role. Uh, Gary Oldman. He was probably the only real favorite that you just knew he was going to win. Like his portrayal of of uh, Winston Churchill was incredible, and I mean he's he should have won years ago. I mean he's been nominated before, and he's just an incredible actor. I, again, was almost surprised, but when I saw him get nominated and saw the other nominations, I said, okay, now I get it. Because I, I, I went into Darkest Hour so skeptical. I was like, yeah, let's see Gary Oldman be Winston Churchill and see how good he does. And I walked out and was like, yeah, it was okay. And then over time, the more I thought about it, yeah, okay, it was actually, it was a pretty incredible performance, to be fair. Like, he, he, he brought a certain amount of, like obviously clout to a role like Winston Churchill that needs to be there. He needs to be a tough, hardened kind of individual, but there's layers to it. There's a lot of heart to it too. And, and I think that is what sealed him. The not got him. The Oscar is, is kind of the personal journey. Winston Churchill takes, um, which is arguably more a centerpiece of the film than Hitler's rise to power. Um, so yeah, I was I was really pleased with that, and I'm I'm again glad he 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 really did deserve it. He, he's been doing it for so long. I'm I'm really pleased to see um, that he scooped it up, and it was very sweet of him to, to give a shout out to his mom at the end of his speech, saying he's gonna put the kettle on and bring it home the Oscar. Like really cool. So yeah. shout out to Gary Oldman. Well done. I, I did want to get to actress in a leading role, Frances McDormand for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, her second Oscar after. Fargo, which is funny because it's exactly what Three Billboards reminded me of. But you should go ahead. What did you think? And she definitely deserved to win. Uh, it's one of the best performances of the year. My personal favorite. I was really hoping that um, Margot Robbie would take it home for I Tanya. But like I said, I feel like that movie has not gotten any love at all this this award season. So I, it doesn't surprise me. But I mean, it's definitely well deserved. It's a it's a very comp- complex, heavy role. I need to see I Tanya because you're not the fr- you're not the only person who told me that you thought Margot Robbie was going to scoop it. I heard that from multiple people, and I kind of assumed they would because you know enough people say it, you're like yeah that'll probably happen. But to talk about Frances McDormand in this role for a second, I remember when Hugh Laurie to dip into TV for a second won an Emmy for House, and I was like really that doesn't I mean I was younger and I was like that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And Hugh Laurie comes on stage to accept his Emmy, shakes the hand of whoever's presenting it, turns to the mic and starts speaking, and he's got a British accent. And I never would have known. And that was the first time I realized, man, actors really do have to settle into a role to become a different person. That's that's how you know you're one of the greats. And it was so fascinating watching Frances McDormand accept an Oscar because she gets up on stage and she's got this funny laugh yeah yeah (laughs) and she's clearly not her character and it's so weird because watching her in billboards like i was convinced francis mcdormand 
is kind of a hard lady. Like she's she's <laughs> yeah. she's she's, she's kind of had a rough life. No, that was just her character, and I I couldn't have separated that from reality if I had tried. It wasn't until watching her acceptance speech last night that I realized, man, she really is a different person. And I should have known earlier because I saw Fargo, but back then I thought kind of the same thing. I was like, oh, Frances McDormand, she's some kind of I don't want to say no nothing, but I've never heard of her. She was in this little movie. I guess she was okay. Beginner's luck. She won the Oscar. Clearly not. Clearly, Frances McDormand is on another level where she can slide into a role in a way that is so subversive, she can even convince people in the Oscars to vote for her. So, well done, Frances McDormand. Um, well deserved. You want to take the next one? Um, yeah, I'll go on to uh, actress in supporting role, uh, which was Allison Janney for I, Tanya. I think this is the only Oscar that they won. It's a big one. And uh, so she plays Tanya Harding's mother, who's just terrible. Like, she's very abusive. She, like, she hits, you know, her daughter, Tanya. She's very uh, mentally and emotionally abusive. And at at the end of I, Tanya, they have, they play real interviews that they watched of the real life people. And it's like looking in a mirror. I mean, she looks exactly like this woman. Up to the point of, she even has this little parrot that, like, lives on her shoulder and she does that in the movie, and it's exactly like it is in real life. And it's yeah, it's just a, it's an incredible role, and and she just knocked it out of, out of the park. So I mean, she definitely deserved it. And I'm glad that I Tanya did get some recognition. Like I mentioned earlier, I did not see I Tanya, so I can't speak a whole lot towards Allison Janney's performance in the movie. What I can speak towards is the our movies post uh, just a few hours after she won saying that she had been in, what, over 120 different productions, film and television. It's crazy to see somebody who has been around for so long, because, yeah, I've seen her in things. She's been around. Um, Finally get some really serious recognition. We can talk about somebody like Gary Oldman. Yeah, he's been nominated a bunch. He deserved it. But to see somebody who has been in so many things, has developed her craft to a point where she can completely slide into a role and really fool you, even for a minute, it's really incredible, and I'm 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 really pleased she won. I, I again didn't see the movie, so I guess I don't have a whole lot to say about her performance <laughs> in it. Um, but it's it's good to see that kind of thing happen. To see somebody scoop a win like that. And speaking of scooping a win, actor in a supporting role went to Sam Rockwell for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. What do you think about this? Uh, you know, so both him and Woody Harrelson were nominated for that movie, which I always kind of think it's unfair when it's two people <laughs> from the same movie because it means yeah. it means at least one of them's not going home with, with an Oscar. Um, but but his character w- was very is very just difficult to play. And what's interesting is his character ends up not being what you think he is because he looks on the surface like he's just this like really racist cop. And that's definitely a part of his character, but there's a lot more to him, and he definitely goes through a change and transformation throughout the film as well. Yes, Sam Rockwell's character um, is... (laughs) That's part of what's so great about him in Three Billboards, because at the beginning, you assume he is just a base, boring, blue-collar cop who's kind of racist. And then at some point you realize, wow, he's so much more than that. And and he does too. And he, he, like his, his performance brings you along on this kind of journey of self-discovery in his own character in a way that's really inviting and, and kind of heartwarming. 
uh, from a character who, by all for all intents and purposes, you shouldn't really like. He, he does some things in the movie that are questionable at best, I think. Um, it's really surprising to see a character or an actor like Sam Rockwell pull something like this off, not because he's incapable of it, but because you've seen him work up to things like this before. His performance in something like Moon or even previous Martin McDonough films like Seven Psychopaths or... I forget the other, I forget the other one, but I know this is another one. In Bruges. Um, in Bruges. In, right. Is he not in In Bruges? Uh, I, I can't remember. I could have sworn he's in there somewhere. Uh, it's really inspiring. And again, like Alice and Janie, it's really cool to see somebody kind of have developed their craft to a point where they're finally getting the biggest recognition they could in their field. Really incredible stuff. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing more of Sam Rockwell in the future. Which uh, which category do you want to tackle next? Um. The the next thing, like like we said earlier, is that uh, the awards were kind of spread out and everyone won a little bit of of everything. Yeah, uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, our favorite <laughs> or my favorite film oh, of the year. Man, it did get some recognition. Finally, Roger Deakins, after 15, 14 nominations, won fourteen for, for uh, best cinematography for for Blade Runner. Uh, There's. Go ahead. Yes. No, sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. Um, there's a video that I sent you last night from the Toronto International Film Festival called Roger Deakins is the Loser. It's like three minutes long. If you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you to go watch it. It covers every film Roger Deakins has been nominated for and what beat him that year. And to be fair, Roger Deakins has gone up against some heavy hitters. I mean, he's lost to movies like Titanic and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon big ones yeah but i didn't know till watching that movie last night just how many roger deakins films i adored i had no idea how many of these movies i had seen and actually really respected not only movies like fargo and the big lebowski but the shawshank redemption i mean he's done some really incredible stuff from 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 and the shawshank redemption was like his first one this is like his first movie <laughs> wow yeah I know, like tremendous, a Frank Darabont film. And and Roger Deakins is, like, you can look at his filmography, especially in, like I said, this video where they just kind of lay it out in like three minutes. They cover it real fast. And you can kind of see how he's evolved and get to the point where he's producing Blade Runner 2049, a masterpiece in my eyes. Um, and it's really incredible work. Like, fantastic. And I know he went up against some big ones this year. I know he went up against Dunkirk amongst others, but man, like, if there was anybody who deserved a freaking win, it was Roger Deakins for Blade Runner 2049. Really yeah. pleased. Yeah, and it's it's also, um, well, it, we should mention that Blade Runner also won for Best Visual Effects. It did. And this is different from cinematography. Roger Deakins did not accept an Oscar for visual effects. Right, but it, you know, it went up against things like Star Wars and uh, Dunkirk. Guardians oh, of the Galaxy Guardians Volume of- 2. Yeah. Um. War- it, go ahead sorry go ahead i was gonna say <laughs> uh, scooping sorry scooping visual effects from war for the planet of the apes is actually kind of an accomplishment because that movie had some pretty incredible effects all things considered like the mocap and cgi in that movie is pretty incredible so for blade runner 2049 to take it it's really cool and i'd argue the whole reason blade runner 2049 got visual effects i think you know where i'm going with this it was it was 
It, it was the, the AI sex scene. It had to have been. <laughs> Act like that didn't blow your mind the first time you saw that, that scene. Like, that, it's incredible. That was one of many incredible scenes. There's many incredible scenes. If you've not seen Blade Runner 2049, <laughs> what are you doing? Like, drive to the nearest <laughs> Best Buy or rent it on your Xbox or whatever you can do. Like, watch that brilliant film. Um, I did want to cover Best Original Screenplay. This went to Get Out for writing written by Jordan Peele. Really incredible. And this is one that I know I guess I'm I'm glad it's celebrated because I already saw some people on Twitter like get out got snubbed. Did it really? I don't think it did because it's not easy for a horror movie to scoop best writing of the year. Like that is incredible and Get Out is incredibly well written. Get Out is a movie that does this brilliant gosh what's the best way to say this it pursues horror tropes in a new and interesting way you look at a movie like predator and it's a movie about a bunch of mercenaries in the vietnam jungle right having to deal with this kind of invisible force you look at a movie like alien and it's a horror movie about space truckers trying to get from a to b having to deal with this invisible force get out is a movie about a guy going to see his girlfriend's parents for the first time And it's effective horror that works by playing to tropes and societal stereotypes that we built up around ourselves. It's really effective, and I think it's a well-deserved Oscar. What do you think? No, absolutely, and it's a huge deal. So Jordan Peele is the the first black person to win uh, for, what is it, original screenplay. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it definitely deserves it. And as far as the other awards, um, again, I... I'm not upset about who won what it's, I think it was very fair. I, if it, it, I don't think um, get out is necessarily best picture material personally. I think it is a great film, but I think that would have been maybe a little bit of a stretch. Right. One thing I do want to talk about before we go, and we've gone way long on the Oscar segment, but we only get one. We can only talk about the winners once a year. All right. It's fine. <laughs> That's right. Uh, is Dunkirk. Dunkirk was nominated. Well, it was nominated for, I don't even remember how many Oscars. It won three. A ton. ton. Yeah. It won three Oscars. It won film editing, sound editing, and sound mixing. Andy, you've seen Dunkirk. I have it on Blu-ray and haven't watched it yet. What do you think about this? So the sound is a huge part of of the film. It's arguably what's most immersive. Um, Chris Nolan is is really known for, again, his immersion and the experience of going to the theater. I, I always feel like... Going to his movies like getting on a roller coaster. It's like the ride. Interstellar was like that. I called it Interstellar the ride because the, the sound was so loud it shook me in my seat in in the IMAX. And that's what he wants. He wants you to cover your ears. He wants you to be uncomfortably loud. Um, and the the sound is so convincing. Uh, the very first thing that happens is there's these soldiers in the street and they get fired on. So there's gunshots and the gunshots are so loud and so expertly place it i mean you duck like there's so many times where i would i just jumped or i like ducked because it sounded like there were bullets whizzing past my head and the whole film is like that the you know when bombs go off or you know different things happen it's just it's such a huge part of the film i there's a video and i haven't watched it because i didn't see dunkirk but i thought of this when i saw that dunkirk had scooped both of the sound awards is a video from Vox called The Sound Illusion That Makes Dunkirk So Intense. Have you seen this? No. Okay. Well, it's a Vox video about Dunkirk's sound. And it's not every day somebody makes a, somebody makes a video essay about sound in a movie. 
But I need to watch the movie and check it out. And if you have seen Dunkirk and you haven't seen this video, check it out and let us know what you think at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Uh, shameless plug for our inbox. Um, I think there's something telling about exactly what you just said. A movie that uses sound to kind of dip you into an experience that you haven't had before. The only other one I could compare it to is Blade Runner 2049 because when I saw Blade Runner 2049, the first time I saw it was in a Dolby theater and the sound was so loud when Ryan Gosling's character's hover car goes kind of zooming through the city, it shook my seat. It's a chilling effect if you haven't had it before and it's interesting to see in the rise of things like Dolby Atmos theaters how sound is being used to kind of bring people into an experience more so than they would have been. What's interesting about this for me is I have a history with Christopher Nolan movies <laughs> being reported at the movies for having poorly mixed sound. Really, this is a real thing. I remember back when I worked in high school, back when I was in high school, and I was working at the movies and I worked there for Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises and Inception, I think. Um, and uh, oh no, just Dark Knight and, Dar and Inception, just those two. And in both cases, people would come and complain and say uh, that the action, the, the explosion stuff are too loud. The dialogue's too quiet. And every time you'd be like, it's intentional. It's a Christopher Nolan film. Everything in this movie is exactly placed. Everything in, in, in sound, in the soundscape is exactly the way it's supposed to be. If it feels loud, it's because it's supposed to. That's kind of what he's about. So I haven't seen Dunkirk. I haven't seen the video talking about how great the sound in Dunkirk is. But I have seen Christopher Nolan's previous work. And not only do I understand that he deserves these Oscars, I understand that the emphasis he puts on sound editing is almost as important as his emphasis in using IMAX film to tell his story. Um, and therefore, I would imagine this is more than well deserved. Also, film editing. Do you have anything to say about that? Um, not really. <laughs> I, right, I, can't, well, I can't, sorry, I can't, I can't really, uh, I don't know enough about film editing. Film editing is a tough one because a whole lot of what goes into film editing is involving things you kind of don't see, right? There has to be a boatload, a German U-boat full of footage that got left on the cutting room floor from Dunkirk. I mean, just looking at like the production and, and kind of where they went out and filmed this stuff the amount of editing that had to have taken place to trim all of that down to the movie we got has got to be tremendous. And again, haven't seen it, so I'm kind of just speaking out of turn here, but when a movie gets film editing, I think an interesting exercise, if you can swing it, is to go back and watch the movies that were that were nominated for film editing as well and kind of compare and, and see, okay, why, why did these movies get nominated and why did Dunkirk win? The other movies were Baby Driver, I, Tanya, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And I think a big part of why Dunkirk won is because it was sell selling, telling so much more a tremendous epic of a story than those other movies were. And I think, I think there's something to that, to being able to suss out a tight two-and-a-half-hour story out of right. all of that chaos, right? It's, I mean, it's, that, it's that's, actually, what, that's what editing is, isn't it? Yeah, it's actually a little bit on the short side. It's actually less than two hours. Is it really? Yeah. I would have assumed it was nice and long. Okay, well, maybe I, maybe I should watch that movie that I own <laughs> on a Blu-ray. Yeah, maybe I should check that well, out. Well, see, and that's one of the things people, people were initially kind of worried. They're like, oh, it's so short, you know? And it's, I mean, it's not it's not 90 minutes. It's closer to two hours, but it, it the time is perfect. Like, it, it feels as long as it need to be. Right. 
Well, speaking of things that are as long as they need to be, I think we have gone well over how long we're planning on talking about the Oscars. Is there anything else you want to get to before we move on to our next movie? I'm ready to go. All right. Well, uh, I don't want to steal your thunder. Uh, whenever you're ready, go ahead. Okay, so the next thing we're going to review is um, It Comes at Night. Do you have any idea what's going on out there? Which is a horror thriller film that actually came out in the summer and is available on Amazon Prime. It's where we watched it. It was directed by Trey Edward Schultz, and it stars Joel Edgerton, and he... He is living with his family, his wife, and his teenage son at this remote cabin in the middle of the woods, and some sort of apocalyptic situation has happened. We don't know what it is. We just know that people are sick, people have fled the, the cities, and that's about all we know. And they're, So they're in this reclusive cabin, um, and they have very strict rules about how they live. There's only one door in and out of the cabin. All, and it's a, it's a big, like, two-story thing. It's not just, like, a one-room cabin. Um, they wear gloves a lot of times when they're outside. They have gas masks. Uh, there's only one set of keys to get in and out of the door. All the windows and doors are, are boarded up. So, you know, there's some sort of contagion or something that they're trying to make sure that they don't get. Um, and so that's kind of the setup. But then we also meet a character named Will who stumbles upon the house. And, you know, he says... I'm, I have a family, I have a wife and son, and the, and we're looking for food and shelter, and they said, or water and shelter, and they said, well, you know, we have food to trade, and they eventually asked, you know, can, can we just come and stay with you in the cabin, you know, we can kind of defend it better and work together, and we have animals, we have some food that, that we can, you know, help just maybe build like this little commune or something. Um, and so the rest of the film plays out into, you know, the decisions they make from that situation and how things kind of turn out. And like I said, it's a brilliant piece of, of horror slash thriller because it's all about paranoia and distrust and fear of the unknown because you, you essentially have to take every, everyone at their word. Um, Paul, who is the the main character played by Joel Edgerton, um, you kind of have to believe everything he says and then will you know, you know, there's all these tense situations where you don't know whether or not to trust these people. Um, but at the same time, you want to help them, but you also don't want to get sick or you don't want someone to come and, like, kill you and take all your supplies. Again, it's a post-apocalyptic uh, situation. Um, so it's a great little horror movie um, that has so much atmosphere. And it's it's just, again, you're creeped out the whole time and you're disoriented and you don't have enough information and there's so many things that happen that you just they're either unexplained or they're ambiguous and again that plays into the theme of this uh, fear of the unknown i think it comes at night is a brilliant exercise in exactly what you just said the fear of the unknown you are given from the very beginning very little information about what is going on and it's awesome and, and I mean that because this is one of those movies that really does play to that kind of human curiosity of a kind of a what would you do scenario. It's the whole movie. What would you do if, you know, you were in this situation? It's not directly asking the question, but it's indirectly, indirectly kind of walking you through this story and you can't help but wonder, man, are they doing the right thing? Are they doing the wrong thing? 
maybe even who should I be rooting for here? Who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Are there any? Are there any lines in the sand? Or is it all completely lost in the chaos of whatever is happening in the world? It Comes at Night does a brilliant job of limiting information and expecting you to make a decision or really the characters to make a decision based on the little they know. And it's fascinating. Because it keeps drawing you in and posing these big questions. Okay, well, do you take this guy in, not really knowing if he's telling the truth? Do you trust him? Because it might be better for your survival, or do you abandon him? Is it worth chasing after whatever might be in the woods, or is it better to stay in and hide? Who can you believe, and who can't you believe? And in the case of a essentially invisible force... Um, what is real and what isn't. And it poses all of these questions in such a fascinating way because it just trickles out information to you, just little by little. Um, and not only is that the way the story is told, it's almost a plot device because these characters have to rely on what they think, not what they know because they don't yeah. know what is real and what isn't they don't know if people around them are telling the truth or not they don't even know what the hell happened and why people are getting sick they don't know they they don't even really know how the sickness works at one point one of them explains that well one person we knew um they kind of turned over and started showing symptoms in less than a day we don't even know if that's normal like there, there's so much limited information in this yeah. movie, and it's <laughs> it's such a brilliant investigation as the audience to try to figure it out you're just getting clues just kind of left for you like a trail of breadcrumbs uh walking you to the witch's house like hansel and gretel and you've got to try to figure it all out and it's so much fun i had a blast watching this movie um go ahead yeah it's it's incredible like you said the the lack of information um the the son travis um who's a, is the teenage son he kind of has these nightmares. We get a lot of these nightmare scenes um, where I, I think the aspect ratio actually changes as well. Um, but he becomes kind of an unreliable narrator because you, you, it seems like he's slowly losing his mind and you can't really tell if he's, when he relays information, if it's accurate or not. He may right. not even know. And it's not just him. A lot of the characters in that movie are like, I can't tell if they're mean, they mean what they're saying or, shoot, this could all be a dream for all I know. Like, it, it really is fascinating how the movie kind of upends traditional kind of storytelling and structure while staying within relatively followable margins, um, but keeps you hooked regardless. It really is an exercise in clever writing and storytelling. And it's really impressive from a director who, as far as I know, this is his second feature. Right. It's pretty, it's pretty fantastic. One thing I did want to talk about is kind of the limit of characters. There aren't a lot of characters in this movie. It's pretty slim. And it's, it's fascinating how well these characters kind of bounce off each other for being in such a confined space. For the most part, this movie takes place in this house and the woods. And it does a really good job of keeping these characters almost like in a lifeboat in the middle of the ocean scenario because the woods are always just claustrophobically suffocating. They're always just there. And anytime somebody runs into the woods, like you have no idea if they're coming back or not. Like it's, it's, it's really fantastic. And the house is the same way. The first time 
you get to see any of the exterior of the house. It's night and it's lit by one lantern carried by one character. The rest of the frame is black. You can't see anything and you just have to kind of figure it out where they are in the house. Is it one story or two? How do things connect? And they never really show you. You never really get a good layout of the house. Like you just don't, you never really figure out like, you know, it's odd because of the way the kind of the entrance works. There's like a, a room and then a hallway and a red door, but you never really figure it out. You're always kind of unsettled and you never really understand the setting the characters are in. It's really clever in its setup that way. And the setting is just as mysterious as the plot. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing, actually, about the house. Uh, It reminds me, again, of course, of The Shining, where you are disoriented. Like, you know that there is, like, the kitchen, there's the bedrooms, there's some crawl spaces, there's the, the the room that they eat. But I have no idea how it all connects. And I have no idea where, like, the stupid door is on the house. Like, is it in the front? Is it in the back? Where is it? Like, there, you just... Again, it's the fear of the unknown. You don't even know how the house is laid out, and it's just a maze. Right, and the rules are relatively unclear for this kind of survival situation. Like, at night, when they go out, they seem to wear gloves and gas masks. During the day, they're just walking around in jeans and t-shirts. And it's not necessarily clear. Like, sometimes it's like sunset. And they're wearing gas masks and other times it's not and they're not. And like it, it, it's sunrise and they're doing different things. Sometimes in the house they're wearing gloves and a mask. Other times they're not. Some windows are boarded up. Others are open. Like sometimes there's plastic in front of things. Others t- other times there's not. And it all kind of comes together just to keep you guessing. Every time something's on the screen you have to try to figure out like, wait, how does this work? What, what are the rules here? And it's fascinating because the characters don't really know, and, and, and you don't either. And yeah. it really gets you engrossed in the story. Uh, it reminded me a lot of uh, John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982, uh, that classic horror movie, where that movie was also about paranoia and who to trust and, wait, who is the thing and who's not and who messed with the blood. And I think that this film's really inspired in a large part uh, by that. But you're you're exactly right. You just you don't know who to believe you don't know if what they're saying is true or even if they know the difference between like reality and non-reality right and it's it's so great to see the characters kind of bounce out off of each other and kind of see these lights in the darkness both literally and figuratively because there's scenes where one character will will kind of unveil what might have been a white lie or what might have been even a little untruth. And you can see another character realize, oh yeah, I can't trust you because you're not telling the truth always. There's little, little things, yeah, and it pits these kind of survivors often with each other and sometimes against each other in in really engaging ways that you can't help but think, yeah, I'd probably do the same thing. Like, that makes sense to me. And it's crazy to see in some kind of tense situations how these characters react because oftentimes you find... You know, that's not how I would have expected that person to react. Maybe I don't know them as well as I should, which is what other characters in the movie come to realize. It's a really fascinating little character study. And and low budget, too. I'm pretty sure they just shot this in a house on a weekend or something. I mean, no, it took longer to make, but... Um, it's just really, really effective storytelling on, on, an, on an easy budget um, and just really well put together. Fantastic filmmaking. One of the... Th- the, the sources or 
kind of one of the things I wanted to cite for this movie uh, that I think it drew inspiration from is Evil Dead because it's certainly got a cabin in the woods kind of scenario. And there's a couple of scenes, especially in the Travis dream sequences, when the camera is off a tripod and it's just like gliding through the air in this really slow, creepy way and all these slow pans where there might be a lot of action on screen, but the camera's just very slowly moving along and you just kind of have to wait and anxiously see where it's going to end up and what you're going to be looking at. It's effective and really clever filmmaking. Yeah. The last thing I want to touch on is another theme uh, throughout the movie is kind of this loss of humanity because they have all these rules to keep them safe and secure, but it's also, it raises a question like at what cost at, you know, if we are so paranoid about our own safety and security that we end up doing terrible things because of, of that fear, like, you know, what have we lost or what, what price are we willing to pay or is it worth it? Um, I read an interesting uh, article that theorized that the film is actually maybe about things like fear of terrorism, fear of immigrants, where, you know, it's like the war on terror. We were so scared of the terror, we turned into terrorists, that kind of um, thought or that, that, you know, those kinds of questions are brought up because good characters in an effort to protect their family end up doing some pretty terrible things. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I, I I got to the end of this movie and I didn't really know how to feel about it, but I knew I liked it. It's not every day a movie comes along and makes you feel like you're on the edge of your seat the whole time and like it comes at night, does it really effectively. When it wants you to feel a false sense of security, you feel a false sense of security. When it wants you to feel scared, you feel scared. It's very very effective storytelling and filmmaking and performances too. I shouldn't overshadow those. The performances in this movie are fantastic. They're very convincing. Um, it's really effective. I can't believe more people didn't see this movie when it came out. I didn't. This is my first time seeing it. Um, really impressed. Anything else you want to say before recommendations? Um, yeah. Well, the, the last thing is that it, you know, it doesn't do, it avoids a lot of the tropes. Like there, I think there's maybe one jump scare in the whole thing. Uh, and it's early. Yeah, and yeah, they, the, they knock it out quick. Yeah, and the rest of it is all just about it's about mood and atmosphere, and again, the lack of information. It, even things like, you know, it's hard to see. It's it's they're in the woods. There's they have to use lanterns a lot. So part of the fear of the unknown is just things that you can't see because you're not in the city. You don't have that kind of lighting. Mm-hmm. And it's again uh, to borrow a phrase from my last two comments it's effective it just is like there's really there's really no better way to say it like the movie does such a great job of just kind of trickling these things down to you little little pieces along the way that you can kind of find and feel solace in there's a point at which you'll feel like okay I kind of understand how this sickness works I get it and then like two scenes later you're like I don't get it like I, I thought I got it <laughs> But I don't. It's unclear. And like, just like life, I guess, that's what makes it feel so real. Because often, like, things don't really make sense to us. You know, it's kind of the way the world works. And mm -hmm. uh, It Comes at Night does a brilliant job of telling a very dark story um, in that light. So, yeah. And again, back to the thing, um, you know, at the very end of the thing, where the question is, who is, of the two remaining characters, who is the thing and who is not? You know, mm -hmm. that, like, that is still debated over and there's a similar question that happens in the, in this film as well about a certain event. And I, I've scoured the internet and I still have yet to find a definitive answer. 
Right. And we're not a spoiler cast, so we won't be discussing it on this movie. But uh, I would say it's probably worth your time. Andy, would you recommend It Comes at Night? Absolutely. I would as well. It Comes at Night is awesome. It is absolutely worth your time. Uh, if you got anybody in, in your house who's particularly like a scaredy cat, maybe not watch it with them. But I watched this alone uh, in the dark, and it was awesome. Fantastic. Like, really enjoyable. Uh, it is on Amazon Prime. Uh, totally worth the price of admission. Check it out. It's worth it. Any closing thoughts? Um, no, I think that's it. <laughs> Rock really, re- really loved it. Yeah, really loved it. It's 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 great. So that just about wraps up our show. We have run very long this week, almost depending on how long our, our next little bit of conversation here is. Uh, our longest show ever. So I'm hoping we can scoot it, scoot out before then. What are we talking about next week? Oh gosh, uh, next week we got to figure out what we're watching. So there's uh, a wrinkle. You know, yeah. a, a wrinkle in time is coming out, as well as uh, some smaller films, Thoroughbreds and Gringo. So I got to figure out what what we're watching for for this show and just I yeah I, I don't know about thoroughbreds I can't I can't imagine that one off the top of my head um, and I'm probably gonna feel stupid listening back to this like oh god I don't know, know what that was but but between the two movies here here's the split we were talking about this before the show we can either go see a wrinkle in time a thing that's probably relatively popular. And more people will go see. Or we can go see Gringo, a movie that looks relatively adult that we might actually enjoy. That's got our boy Joel, Joel Edgerton in it. Between the two, personally, I think I'd rather go see Gringo. And it's challenging because we're doing a podcast and we'd like more people to listen to it. But if we're not doing a movie we want to see, then what's the point, right? Like, what, what, what's it all for? <laughs> we haven't we sold out yet. Out? Yeah, we that's haven't right. sold out just yet. <laughs> we haven't sold out just yet. So I think we'll just figure it out for next week, right? It'll be some one of those. It's, it will, one thing. And then... Uh, I don't know. I, I guess we'll figure it out between now and then. I would like to have that discussion about sci-fi and film. Maybe next week we'll get to we'll get to do that. But for now, uh, I guess there's still people out to find the show, right? That that would be that would be sensible. Yeah, you can find us on iTunes at uh, off sh- off show off script film review off show uh, off sellouts. Yeah, um, off script film review. And uh, check out our website at offscriptfilmreview.com. And if you have any correspondence and uh, want to send us hate mail, uh, mail us at <laughs> mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Yeah, or tell us we're great. I mean, either or. Uh, tell us our Oscar reviews were, were uh, not what, you, what you'd what you hoped, I guess. Tell us Get Out got snubbed. We'll talk about that. I don't think it did, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. If you can swing it, leave a rating and review on iTunes. It helps more people find the show and helps the show become more than the greatness that it already is, I guess. <laughs> so uh, drop us a like, a review, sub if you can swing it. Take your friends' phones, make them sub. It'll be perfect. And until next time, I suppose, for episode 12 of Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.